0: So this is a place where we can be honest. A place where we can admit our, our struggles and even our sins with one another. So, here goes. When I was a kid, I was a Dallas Cowboy fan. Look, I cheered for the Saints where I was from, but they never won, ever. And uh, just some circumstances, I I became a Cowboys fan, and I'm I'm talking when I was pretty young. Two primary reasons. One was a quarterback. His name was Roger Staubach. Absolutely loved Roger Staubach. But the second reason was a coach. and That coach's name is Tom Landry. I think we got a photo of him here somewhere. No photo, all right. You can look him up later, all right? He wears cool hats, wears cool hats. uh, This coach, when he first came to the Cowboys, didn't win, honestly. First several seasons were losing seasons. But they signed him to a long-term contract, like 10 years. It's a good thing. 20 consecutive winning seasons, 19 playoff appearances, 13 divisional titles, five Super Bowl appearances, and two times Super Bowl champion. That's not a bad run. He was an innovative coach. He invented what's called the 4-3 defense, eventually uh, developed a defense that was called the flex. Um, He was the kind of guy that that brought things, made them more prominent, like the shotgun. He used it a lot more than anybody had ever ever used it before, and a tactic called the Landry Shift. Now, the Landry Shift was was basically what the offensive linemen would do when they would come to the line ready for a play. They would start in a two-point stance. On a certain call from the quarterback, all the linemen together at the same time would stand up and then go to a three-point stance. That makes sense? When they would stand up, that's when the backs in the backfield would shift. They would make their moves and it was just kind of this split second that became a, a, a distraction, a barrier between the defense and what was going. It just created a little extra question and a little extra moment for them to try to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. He was an innovative guy, but he was also a good man. The overflow of a faith in Jesus that was real. When I grew up, I actually got the chance to meet him at several Fellowship of Christian Athletes events. Um, Just a good man. Now, here's where I'm going. Tom Landry has not been the coach of the Dallas Cowboys for more than 30 years. It's been a long time. But did you know that even today, 2019, when the Cowboys are actually winning a game, and I'm not really a Cowboys fan anymore, but I think this is cool, when they're actually winning a game, and at the end of a game they go into what's called victory formation. That simply means all the quarterback's going to do is they're going to snap the ball and he's going to go to a knee in order to run out the clock. When they go into a victory formation in 2019, the offensive linemen come to the line in a two-point stance, and on the call of a quarterback, they all stand up, and they go to a three-point stance. They don't do it any other time, but when they go into victory formation, they bring back the Landry shift, because it's just a moment of honor. It's just a moment of honor. Now, Tom Landry wasn't perfect, but it is good to honor good men, isn't it? Well, here's the question that I'm bringing to you today. How much more should we honor the one who is not just good, but he is perfect? Perfect. How much more should we honor the one who gives us the very breath that we have at this moment, the one who sacrificed his life that we might live again, the one who is perfect in every thought, every motive, every word, every act, the one who is always present, the one who is always faithful. The scripture declares he deserves all glory, all honor, All praise and that is what we're gonna talk about today so I'm really glad that you chose to be here today thank you for making the effort to join with God's people as we dig into his word want to send a shout out to the Adrian campus I'm hoping that you guys are doing well today we're really grateful that we can all be together we are in week four of a study called grace and grit Grace and Grit. It's a study of the book of 2 Timothy. So if you've got your Bible, phone, whatever it is, I encourage you to find it and follow along because every week we're taking a next step in 2 Timothy. Today we are arriving at the end of chapter 2. Today we're going to finish chapter 2 and I want you to see what Paul has to say to a young man, Timothy, to the church that he pastors at Ephesus and to you and me. Here's what it says, 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 20. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Now, we get the picture here, large house, he says. So, purposefully, I think not just a house, but a large house. And and the larger the house, the more items would be in the house, right? There's furniture, there's there's dishes. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of stuff in a house. He says some of them are for special purposes. Some of them are for common use. And those words, special and common in other places in the scripture are sometimes translated honorable and dishonorable. That's what those terms are talking about. There are some items that are honorable. They're used for honor. And there are other items that are dishonorable. Now, I think I can help us um, understand what we're doing today. I'm going to get something real quick. Are, are you hungry yet? A little bit, not yet. I thought it would be nice. Um, Adrian, they're fine, all right? Don't worry about them today. They're not hungry at, at the moment. But, but I thought you guys might be by the time we're done today, all right? So I just prepared a little something. Um, I actually heard somebody talking the other day about chili, Made from burnt ends. And I'm, yeah, that's what I did. Who, that's, 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 that's a good idea. And so I'm thinking maybe I could just like whip up a batch of burnt in chili when we're done today. And by the time you visit for a little bit, it'll almost be lunchtime. And for burnt in chili, I would eat that for breakfast. You know what I'm saying? It's burnt in chili. So, so I decided to make some for you, and I mean, I had to get like a big enough container to be able to make enough, and it had, I mean, it had this handy lid so that keep it would keep it warm and all, all right? So after service, when we're done, um, I think there's going to be plenty by the time we, we ladle that out, but you know what? I actually... I probably should stir it, I really should, I should stir it (laughs) because it's been a little while since, (laughs) what, did someone gag just a second ago, someone gag, I feel like this would be one of those commercials, that's not right, you know what I mean, that's not right. Now, what's, what's not right about it? There are some items that are used for special purposes, honorable. There are some items that are used for common use, dishonorable, right? So, so we, can, we can understand what Paul is talking about when he, when he gives us this little illustration. In, in Paul's day, it would have been very similar. In a house, there were honorable things, but then there were also pails and buckets and stuff that would be used for, like, removing waste from a house. I mean, there are honorable things. There are dishonorable things. Now, here's what we got to make sure we understand. In other places in the Bible, the church is described as one body. And that that one body has many parts. And the point is, regardless of what part of the body that that you may be, all the parts are what? Valuable, they're all valuable. Listen to me, that's not the point of what Paul is telling us here. Now if you wanted to argue with me that a garbage can is kind of important in your house, I would agree. If you wanna argue with me that one of these is valuable to have in your house, I'm, I'm with you, I agree. But that is not the point of this illustration that Paul is giving us. He is simply saying there are some items in a house that bring honor. There are some items in a house that are dishonorable. You with me? Verse 21. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes. Okay, Paul, how do we know if we are honorable? Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Okay, so time out. Who exactly are we talking about here? Well, let's get the image. We got a big house. And I think this big house, he's referring to the church, all right? We got a house with, with a lot of things inside the house. In this case, it's a lot of people inside the house. Some of those people belong to Jesus and honor him. But some who are in the house don't. Some don't. Like a couple of guys that we've been hearing about in 2 Timothy chapter 2, right? Hymenaeus and Philetus. Remember, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, those were a part of our study. In just the few verses before, Paul told, told Timothy, Timothy, you gotta use God's word precisely, man. You gotta cut it straight, remember that? You, you gotta make sure that you handle God's word right. Don't handle it like these two guys who are teaching false things and leading people astray. And he reminds Timothy in verse 19 that everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. What now he's saying, Timothy, be clean. Be clean. So here's your first blank. You got outlines today. I encourage you to grab a pen, pencil, whatever you need there, and let's fill in a little bit that we can retain what we're learning today. Honoring God involves taking responsibility to live clean. Honoring God involves taking responsibility to live clean. I'm saying taking responsibility because Paul's saying you got a choice here. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter. Now what was the latter? The latter was the, was the false teaching that is an example of something that is sinful. He, he's saying you've you got to stay away from that which is sinful. Now please, Paul is not teaching that we cleanse our own sin. How do we know that? Because when we cut straight all the passages of Scripture, we know that that is not the message that the Bible gives. He is not saying that we cleanse ourselves of our own sin. If you could deal with your own sin problem, then Jesus' death was not needed. But none of us can deal with our own sin problem. But think of it like this. If you've got hands that are dirty, You've been working outside and, and, and suddenly your hands are, are are dirty. You clean them with some soap. The soap and the water are the means for the cleansing. Well, what is the means for the cleansing of our sin? What can wash away my sin? nothing but what? The blood of Jesus. Yeah. So when, when we meet him, yes, our sin is forgiven. When, when we call out to, to Jesus in faith, not because we deserve, not because we earn, but we call out and in his grace, he forgives us and we repent. It's a word that means to change our mind and to change our action. But the message of Scripture is you and I have the responsibility to continue to walk in that repentance. We continue to walk in the light. We continue to confess our sin to him. We continue to desire to stay clean. We continue repenting. And Paul's saying you can choose by this to be an article of honor. You fall into error... If you let go of either God's absolute sovereignty in making you his or man's full responsibility for our sins. In scripture they are both there. And the point that Paul is driving home today for us is you got a choice. Are you going to be an article that is clean, used for honor, Or are you going to be one that is dirty, used for dishonor? You are accountable for the choice. Now please hear me, please hear me, please hear me. The God we know can use sinful people for his purpose. Do you know that? In the Old Testament, he uses people like Pharaoh Right, An ungodly man, but God can use him for his purpose. In the New Testament, he can use a Judas. He can use Herod. He can use Pilate to, to bring about the purpose of, of Jesus all right, headed to the cross. He can do that. But listen to what I'm telling you today. God isn't going to use a trash can life to serve up good news. He's not going to use a trash can life to serve up good news. Now, keep keep listening. Listen, we believe our God can take the most broken of lives. He can take the most sinful person imaginable. And not only can God forgive all that sin completely, but God can turn that life into a beautiful force for his glory. Some of us in the room are really grateful for that. No matter how broken you tell me you are, no matter how sinful you may tell me you are, I'm telling you that God's grace is bigger, the cross is bigger. Not only can he forgive you, but he can give your life the most beautiful purpose that declares his greatness for the rest of your days. But, when we continually choose to rebel against God, When we continually make willful decisions away from the heart of God, we are not honoring him. We are refusing his power at work in us. But when you're clean, let's get a few of these. When you are clean, you are set apart for God. He says you're holy, that's the word he uses. and That's what the word means, it means to be set apart. It, it, in the Bible, or there's a word that we use, is called sanctified, it's a big word, what does it mean? It just means holy, it means set apart. When you make, make, meet Jesus, y- you are sanctified once and for all. You are set apart for him once and for all. But it is also true that there is a progressive part to sanctification, which means when I begin to follow Jesus every day, I'm growing and he's conforming me to be a little more like him. Paul's saying, man, when you are set apart for God, you you, you are growing in this process of being separate from sin, clean vessels that honor him. Second, when clean, you are useful to God. He says you are useful to the master. It's just a word that means who's the king? He's the king. Who's the commanding officer? He's the commanding officer. We, we are useful to him, his lordship, to be useful. You ever been to the restaurant and you're, you're just about to enjoy the food that you just requested and you pick up the fork, and on that fork, there's some crust. Today is make you nauseous day, have you noticed? <laughs> but it's the point, it's the point. There's some crust on that fork. This ain't the first time this fork's been used, but apparently it's the last time it's been washed, right? And so you, I'm sure, are very, Politely, very graciously and politely, would say to your server, uh, Excuse me, but this one is not useful. Right? That's the image that we have here. If our minds embrace what is not truth, our, our minds embrace lies, if our our lives are crusted by the sin, we are not useful to the master. Here's the third one. When clean, you are willing and ready to serve God. You are willing and ready to serve God. When he uses the word prepared in that verse, it has both of those meanings. You're willing and you're ready. You ever find yourself in one of those life moments when you're grumbling, right? You're grumbling about something that's happened. Usually it's something we feel like we deserve that didn't get given. but we're, we're grumbling. And as you're grumbling, you find yourself in the presence of someone who could really use a word of encouragement. And the answer for most of us is no, we probably didn't even see them. We probably didn't see them. We probably didn't realize it. But what he's saying here is when you're clean, you will be ready and willing and looking. You will have eyes that will see to serve God in any good work that he sets before you. And then Paul shows us what this looks like in a little more practical way. Verse 22. Check it out. Flee, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Let's just talk for this for a second and then I'll give you some blanks here in a minute. Flee from the evil desires of youth. What was he talking about there? Most people, it's interesting, when most people read that phrase, I think most people thinking about youthful desires and sinful immediately go to something like sexual temptation, all right? And I'm just reminding you today, those aren't just youthful, are they? They're not. So although I think that might be a part of what Paul has in mind here, I don't think it's the primary focus. I think Paul is referring to some wrong desires that a younger person, like Timothy, who's a a really young pastor, would be more prone to do than someone who has a little more life and experience and maturity, maybe like Paul. So maybe it's something like the tendency to lose a temper. You lose a temper and you rush forward into a heated argument with with more confidence and more rashness than someone who's been around a little while and has made that mistake before. Maybe it's, maybe it's the, the love for always something new, something always pushing the limit with, with something new, and so it gets you into to, to pursuits and foolish discussions and arguments, and, and all of it leads to quarrels, which seems to be some of the context of this chapter. So what Paul is telling Timothy is, look, while it is right for you to defend your faith, you defend your faith against serious errors while it is right for you to stand firm on the, on the central doctrines of Scripture, like who is Jesus. There is a right way and a wrong way for you to do that. In the verses that are going to follow, he's going to give us the right way, but in this particular, passage, this particular part, he's telling us the wrong way. And the wrong way is an arrogance. Arrogance an arrogance about how much you know, an impatience to immediately blast those who are in error and to be quarrelsome. I can remember a season of my life, I'm going to call it really early 20s, when it was probably the time of my life that I was most mad at the world. You ever been through one of those seasons where you're just mad at the world? And and I think it was um, suddenly I could see a little more of life than I had ever seen before. By that, I mean experiencing the selfishness of the world that just seems to be nonstop, yet at the same time I'm sitting in class after class and so I'm getting information, right? This is college and whenever else and so I feel like I'm learning more and, and, and in that process, you, it's, it's that time in your life when you want to show an independence and you want to show that you have strength and before you know it, you can get really arrogant, really impatient, really argumentative what do you do? Well, what Paul tells us here is got to run from sin and toward godliness. Run from sin, he says, and toward godliness. These are opposites. Fleeing from, pursuing toward. It's not just enough to run from sin. You cannot just run from that which you know is wrong. The question is, what are you running toward? And it's really interesting that the word pursue, the word pursue in this verse is a word that in other places in scripture is often translated, you ready for this? Persecute. In other words, when the church was persecuting, being persecuted, what was happening? People were pursuing them with a vengeance, right? The authorities were pursuing them. They were were chasing them down with a vengeance. That's such a cool picture that Paul says right here, look, I want you to go after godliness with a vengeance. I want you to pursue the next four things that I'm about to give you that describes a godliness. You go after this with everything you've got. Like, pursue, right, actions. That's righteousness. At its simplest form, you you pursue right actions. It's just this general term that that refers to, to doing the right thing. Come on, God's word is not vague about how we should live. It's not. This is not, you know, helpful hints for happy living if you want to give it a try. No. He gives us commandments Not commandments to to, to lord over us, but commandments because he knows this is how your heart is protected. This is the safest place that you can be with the heart of God. Pursue right action. Second, pursue faith and faithfulness. Pursue faith and faithfulness. This word, uh, it, 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 probably has a faithfulness meaning to it. That's why I'm putting it on here, trustworthy, reliable. In other words, when somebody gives you something, be trustworthy in doing it. When he gives you a task, be trustworthy in following through. But the word also definitely means your faith. Pursue your faith, your trust of God. Do you believe He's mighty? Do you believe that he hears the prayers of his people and he acts on our behalf? Do you really trust him to do far more than not only what you are able to do in your strength, but do you really trust him to do more than you can even ask or imagine? He says, pursue with vengeance your faith. And then he says, pursue love. Pursue love. You say, well... I'm just a naturally loving person I'm gonna say to you no you're not that's why Paul says you got to pursue it no we are naturally selfish but he says I want you to pursue with a vengeance love this requires getting the focus off of ourself on to others so that we can treat them the way that we would want to be treated it means giving your time to listen to someone who is hurting even when you have 10 very important things to do today. It means befriending someone who is lonely even though spending time may really bring nothing back to you in that moment. It means the courage to talk to somebody who is trapped in sin with your aim of them being restored to the one who loves them. It means being patient and kind and considerate Pursuing love with a vengeance means investing constant effort to love others. And then pursue peace with others. Pursue peace with others. And the point is that even though the house may have a bunch of people who belong to Jesus in it, right? People who call on the name of the Lord out of hearts that have been cleansed from sin. The truth is, we still have conflicts. We still have misunderstandings. And so the word is, you got to pursue peace with one another. Now, how does the world deal with conflict? The world tends to deal with conflict by either, right, just nursing hurt feelings or spreading gossip about what somebody did to you or you stand up for your rights. But God's way is to first go directly to the person who has offended and you seek to be reconciled. Jesus said this is so important. This is such a big deal for your heart that if you find yourself in worship and you realize that there, there's, you got a, there's a problem, there's, there's something between you and someone, he says, you go, you go, and you be reconciled. Then you come back to the altar. Now can you control Another person's response? No. That's why Paul tells us in Romans, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with everyone. Pursue peace with a vengeance. And then he gives us a little bit of an example of that. Let me read the scripture, and then I'll I'll lay it out for you. Verse don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but must be kind to everyone able to teach not resentful opponents must be gently instructed Now, that's interesting there because that means there will be opponents. You get that? Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. And so he really does get crazy practical here, and he's like, all right, so you got, you got, there's a conflict going on, misunderstanding going on. He calls it, there's some opponents, right? There, there's, what, what do you do here? And here's what he gives us. Paul says again, avoid, avoid ongoing arguments. Avoid ongoing arguments. He repeats that throughout this chapter. Stop it. Stop. Did you know the word stupid was even in the Bible? He's like, he's like, it's, it's stupid arguments, don't, don't do this. Stop just the ongoing arguments. Now he's not saying that we don't address the issue. He's not saying that we don't teach. That's evident from the verses that follow. So what he also says then is you instruct or you teach with gentleness. Stop the ongoing arguments. Instead, instruct with gentleness. This word we've seen before, if you were here when we studied 1 Timothy, this is the word that we know often is translated meekness. It's the word meekness. Meekness doesn't mean wimpy. Meekness means strength, power, under control. It's the picture of a, of a powerful horse, a, a horse that, that has incredible strength. The amount of, of weight that a horse can move is crazy, but that horse is controlled by that bridle, it is strength under control. He says, that's how you approach these situations. You have the power of the living God that is at work in you. Quit acting like it's you and instruct according to his power you do this with meekness. Then, I want you to remember, only God can bring real change of mind. God is the one who brings repentance. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. You and I can't do that. No matter how hard we've tried, and we know we've all tried, when it comes to to certain circumstances where you tried to change somebody's mind, you tried to change their action, but only God can do that. Your job is to speak the truth in love and believing that God loves them more than you even love them and that he holds the power to change minds. And then he says, then don't forget the real enemy. Did you catch that? Don't forget the real enemy who has actually entrapped them. See, we have a way of looking at someone and thinking they are the opponent, but Paul has already clearly taught us in 1 Timothy and in Ephesians and now in 2 Timothy, that's not your real enemy. That flesh and blood that you're looking at, they're not your real enemy. I understand they're pushing back. I understand there's conflict but they are not the real enemy. There is a bigger power who is behind what's going on there and his job is to lie, his job is to deceive, and his job is to destroy. And what he would love to happen is for you and this person to believe that each of you are the enemy until you wipe each other out. Or at least you do so much damage. that if you ever decided to speak of Jesus, the world would say, what? What? Good news for you. What? That's his play. So here's the charge. Stay on mission. He's repeated it over and over again. You got a mission. You got a mission. And if you want to honor him, you need to stay on this mission. This mission with unashamed courage, right? Unashamed courage to speak of Christ and to even suffer for the gospel when that is required. Stay on mission. Can we just, let's leave this up for a little bit because I want us to look at this for just a few minutes as we talk through it. Do you know that there are people around your life right now who do not believe there is hope for tomorrow do you know there are people around your life right now who do not believe there is hope for tomorrow is that true that there is no hope for tomorrow no it's not true It is a lie from an enemy. A lie from an enemy whose point is not just to trip us up, a lie from an enemy whose point is to take us out. This week, in the Garden City community, we were reminded in a most heartbreaking kind of way. A young man not even yet old enough to have graduated high school, who would come to the place of believing that there is no hope for tomorrow. I'm thankful that it sounds like there were some people along the way who tried to help. I'm thankful that there were some people along the way that it sounds like could recognize at least in part what was happening and try. But if we're all honest, I'm afraid that many of us might have to admit that on an ordinary day, we're not thinking about people who are hurting. On an ordinary day, we're not looking for people who are lonely for an ordinary day we've got so much to do important things to do that we truly don't see people who have no hope sometimes like Paul talks about today, it's unchecked sin. Sometimes it's unchecked sin in our own lives that we are not running from the sin. We are not pursuing that which is of righteousness. And, and when we do, our, our eyes are clouded. Sometimes it is unchecked selfishness. It just becomes life about us, which is usually where where sin takes us and we, we just know what we got to do and we're worried about us and what are the things that we need to correct that have been done to us today and we just don't have eyes to see. So the call today, if there ever was a day to hear the call, stay on mission with unashamed courage come on you you got to run from sin and you got to run toward godliness you got to pursue right actions and you got to pursue a faith that gets stronger you got to pursue love and pursue peace with the focus of a soldier and the integrity of an athlete and the tenacity of the farmer stop Chasing temporary things and stop arguing over stupid stuff and live with unashamed courage to speak of Christ. Because it is an honor to represent the one who put hope in us when there was no hope. To play for him, you don't have to be the smartest. You don't have to be the strongest. And you don't have to have the greatest talent. You just have to keep running with him. There may be some of us in the room today that for the very first time it's time for you to turn to Jesus. And maybe for the first time in your life, know what it means to be filled with hope. To turn to the one who truly can forgive all sin to the one who will embrace you and call you his kid. When he forgives your sin, he forgives. He will never bring it up against you again, and he has the power to transform even the most broken, the most hopeless of hearts into a life that can honor him. And then maybe there are some of us that this really can be a bit of a wake-up call that it's time to run from some sin. You, you've been hanging out where you, where you know you should be running from, and it's time to pursue godliness, and you realize that when you don't, it affects how you see. It affects your ability to see those who hurt. It affects your ability to see others, period. And today needs to be the day that you just humble yourself before God And ask for the forgiveness and ask him to help you to want to pursue him. And then for some of us, and maybe it's just as simple as, God, will you please give me eyes that can see the people in my life right now who need to know that there is hope in you? And will you give me an unashamed courage to love? In light of what we have heard from God's word today, what do you need to ask of God?